Amen. And it's good to sing the gospel this morning. We sing a lot of gospel truth this morning. You might not classify those as gospel songs stylistically, but as far as content goes, those were gospel songs you sang this morning. The heart of the gospel is what we sing this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? Good. Hebrews chapter 2 is where you need to turn today. Hebrews chapter 2. We've been looking at Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 through 18 for three weeks now. I told you that it really needs to be preached all at one time, um, but because that would take us so long, we've broken it into three parts, all of which are connected to each other. Last week we looked at the middle part. It was really the heart of the Christian message. It was about the substitutionary death of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the heart of the Christian message, that Christ died for us. It's what we sing about this morning, it's what we celebrate, it's where our hope is found, that Christ died for us. If you remember, there were five steps in the text last week. First, we are human, you are human, and therefore, number two, Christ became human because he comes to help the descendant of Abraham, because he helps to, comes to help the children of Adam, he had to become human, and he became human for a purpose, number three, so that he would die for us. So that he might die for us. So we are human. He became a human for a purpose of dying for us. And the purpose of his dying for us was to nullify, nullify the power of the devil. The deadly power of the devil. We have nothing to fear from death because of Christ. That's number five. That's the fifth step. The application to us is that because he became human and died for us and in dying for us uh, took the power of the devil away, we've got nothing to fear from death. We don't need to live in slavery to fear and death anymore. We sang that a little while ago as well. And we can live with confidence and hope because of Christ. We talked about how this message of Christ becoming man, dying in our place, rising again. We talked about how this is good news. Good news that we must believe. And good, good news that we must declare to the world around us. Because if there is hope, there is only hope in Christ. And if the people around us are going to have hope, we're going to have to preach the gospel to them. We're going to have to tell them this glorious story. This week we're going to see much of the same with a few new themes thrown in. I was talking to a good friend this week about Hebrews and how Hebrews is different than Romans. If you remember in our study of Romans, it was very, uh, I'll call it linear. Um, It seemed to uh, make a point. Paul would make a point in Romans, and then he would take another step forward in the argument, make a new point based on that point, and then he would take another step and make another point. And it was always heading forward. It was a clear linear track. We were taking steps down a road of an argument. Um, The author of Hebrews doesn't necessarily work that way. In fact, it may be more like a symphony when when we talk about Hebrews. Um, Because what's going to happen is you're going to have all of these themes just constantly added to the arrangement. All of these new ideas added to the arrangement. And they're not really going to go anywhere. Once he adds them into the mix, they're not really going to go anywhere. Sometimes they're going to fade into the background. And they're still going to be there. And then sometimes they're going to come out forward as the main theme of a chapter or a verse or a paragraph. And then they'll fade back into the background. Kind of like, like, ooh, is is that an oboe I hear right there? 
Yeah, I remember when he introduced the oboe, and now we've got oboe front and center. That's what's going to happen today in the text. He's going to drop some new things into the mix. He's going to drop this talk about the high priest into the mix. And he's just going to introduce it, and then he's going to step back from it a little bit. But in the next few weeks, it's going to rise up to the front of everything we talk about. And uh, so I want you to think along those lines as we talk about Hebrews. Never leaving anything aside, always just adding more and more to the mix so that the sound gets fuller and richer as we study through this great book. Is that a good picture? You know what a symphony is? Okay, good. If not, look it up. I had to look up what's the difference between a symphony and an orchestra. A symphony is a giant orchestra. That's the answer to that question. Read with me in the text. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 9. This is what God's word says. But we do see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's an important theme. He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things. In bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, this is what we'll study today. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's pray together. God, we ask uh, today that you will help us, that you will take us deeper into the glories of Calvary. That that song will not just be a song that we sing because it's in the order, it's in the set list, but it will be the cry of our hearts. We We don't want to stay at the surface of Calvary. We don't want to stay at the surface of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to go deeper. We want to see clearer. We want to appreciate more and... Drink deeply, as Laura said. We know we can't do that on our own. We need you to show yourself to us. We need you to speak to us. So we pray that you would. And we pray that in the process, our lives will never be the same. That our worship will burn hotter. And our proclamation will shout louder. And that our faith will grow stronger as you show us the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to start in verse 17 today. Again, we don't want to leave off where all that we have seen before. In fact, the author won't let us do that. In verse 17, he starts with the word therefore. I think particularly he's reaching back into verse 16 right there and grabbing the idea that Christ came to help the descendant of Abraham. That he came to help us, 
Not, not angels, not these spiritual beings. He came to help us. And I, I think that's what he's grabbing onto here as he moves into this next thought when he says, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. If, in other words, if Jesus is going to help the descendant of Abraham, he must be made like the descendant of Abraham in every possible way. And I want you to notice the language of necessity here. This is a little bit of a step forward from what he said back in verse 10 when he said it was fitting. When he talked about the incarnation in verse 10, he said it's fitting, it's appropriate for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of salvation through sufferings. In other words, we talk there that it's not out of bounds, it's not out of line for God, the Son of God, eternal pre-existent, glorious, exalted. It's not inappropriate for him to take on human flesh to suffer and die for us. That was the argument in verse 10 that it's appropriate. It's not out of bounds. In this verse, verse 17, he says, it was not only not inappropriate, he says it was necessary. It had to happen. It had to take place this way because the offense of sin is against the infinite God of the universe. And so it will take an infinite one in order to pay the price. But at the same time, the offense was committed by finite man. And so it will take a man in order to bring about reconciliation. And in Christ, and in Christ alone, are both of those things met. Because Jesus is Son of God, and Jesus is Son of Man. He's referred to both of those ways throughout Scripture. Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is fully man. Anselm of Canterbury called Jesus the God-man. And what I want you to hear is that it is necessary for there to be a God-man if there is going to be salvation, if there is going to be redemption, if there's going to be reconciliation, if there's going to be forgiveness of sins, a God-man must do it. And Jesus is the only one of those, ever. It was necessary for him to become like us in all things. This is the way it had to be. And there is no other hope. There is no other way to bring God and man together except by the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is the way it had to be. I want you to, I want to rest a lot of weight on that word. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. But look what he says next as the argument develops. He says, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that... We know that that word means divine purpose. We know that 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 is giving us some behind the scenes, the reason why this happened. So here's divine purpose. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. That's verse 17. So I told you he's going to drop this element in. He's going to drop this new instrument into the symphony. It's the high priest. And if you were a first century Christian that this letter was originally written to, you had grown up in a Jewish background, you had worshipped at the temple, you knew all about the law and the rituals and the festivals, and you're reading a letter where someone drops the idea of a high priest, you say, oh yeah, I know all about that guy. I know all about that high priest. I know how he got his job. I know how he kept his job. I knew what his job was. I know what he wore while he did his job. I know all of those things about the high priest. But we're not first century Jewish Christians in this room today. Are we necessarily? We're definitely not first century folks, right? We're 21st century folks. 
And most of us haven't grown up in a Jewish background. And so when we drop this idea of the high priest into the mix of our discussion about Jesus, a lot of us are saying, I don't know anything about the high priest. I don't know who he is. I don't know what he does. And I certainly don't know what kind of clothes he wears while he does his job. So since the author of Hebrews is going to drop this in and he'll elaborate on it more later on, I want to spend a little bit of time today giving you some overview about what the high priest is and does. Does that make a little bit of sense? So we're going to introduce him here today. Think about it. He's like the oboe. We're going to say, oh, here's an oboe. What's an oboe? I've never heard an oboe before. Let me tell you what an oboe is. Fair enough? The high priest. The high priest is basically the mediator between God and man in the Old Testament. He's basically the mediator between God and man in the Old Testament. And in doing that, he, he does two things. As mediator, he does two things. One, he represents the people before God. He represents the people before God, and two, he represents God before the people. So this is kind of a two-way street. So when he goes before God, he is representing the people, and when he comes out to the people and speaks to them, he is representing God to the people. And his representation of the people to God is seen most clearly in the clothes that he wears. In the clothes that he wears, we see clearly that he is representing the people to God. I want you sometime today certainly before next week, to read all of Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28 is a full and detailed description of the clothes that the high priest wears. And I want you to become familiar with that, not because we're going to mimic that uh, style next week, although that'd be awesome. If somebody came in next week dressed as the high priest, you would definitely score some bonus points with me. (laughs) It's not necessarily what we're looking for, but all of that is symbolic. All of that stuff... And what he wears is symbolic and is pointing us toward Jesus. I want to draw your attention to two things in the clothes he wears that teach us that he represents the people before God. In verse 9, Exodus chapter 28, verse 9, we read this. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Talking about this this, uh, ephod is the word this piece of clothing that he's going to wear on his upper body. He says, you take two onyx stones. God says, you take two onyx stones and engrave the names of the sons of Israel on them. Six of their names, verse 10, six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone according to their birth. As a jeweler engraves a signet, you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in filigree settings of gold. Verse 12 is key. You shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And Aaron, who was the first high priest, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for a memorial. Right? You get the picture here? He's wearing a lot of clothes, a lot of intricate clothes. And part of that garb that he wears are two onyx stones that sit on his shoulders, six names and six names. He takes the names of God's people in before God on his shoulders, okay? It's pretty significant. If he's going to represent the people before God, he carries them on his shoulders when he goes into God's presence. But not only does he carry them on his shoulders, he carries them on his heart. If you skip down in Exodus 28 to verse 15, you read this. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment, the work of skillful workmen. Like the work of the ephod, you shall make it. So this breastpiece and the ephod, they go together, they kind of work together. He says, it shall be square and folded double, a span in length and a span in width. So it's a perfect square. He says, you shall mount on it four rows of stones. The first row shall be a row of ruby, topaz, and emerald. The second row shall be turquoise, sapphire, and diamond. 
The third row, Jacinth, Agate, and Amethyst. The fourth row, Beryl, Onyx, and Jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. I'm going to stop right there and just say, that's a lot of stones. It's a lot of precious stones that all come up again in Revelation. All of these stones, when we get a picture of glory in Revelation, all those stones are there. So I'm not going to chase that down for you today. You can do that on your own, but that's pretty cool. All these stones, 12 of them, read what it says next, verse 21. The stone shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel. Twelve according to their names. They shall be like engravings on a seal, each according to the name of the twelve tribes. Skip down to verse 29, still talking about the breastpiece. Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. Catch that? He's got them on his shoulders, but he's also got them on his heart as he goes in before the Lord. Verse 30, you learned about this a little bit in Sunday school last weekend. You shall put in the breastpiece of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. So the high priest, Aaron was the first one, carried on after that. Part of the clothes he wears shows that when he goes before God, he is representing the people of God before the Lord. As mediator, he represents the people of God before God. That's one side of what the mediator does. The second side is he represents God to the people. So the high priest is this mediator. when the, He represents the people to God and God to the people. And we see that in a very interesting scene in the New Testament. An interesting scene when Jesus is preaching and teaching and people are flocking to him. The religious leaders get all upset and they basically say, we've got to stop this. And the high priest that day says something and what John tells about it is significant. This is John chapter 11. John chapter 11 verse 47 says... Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And listen to this. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and the whole nation not perish. Verse 51, very instructive. It says, now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Ah, oh, there's so much there that's glorious, right? But what I want you to see, not, I want you to see all that there is about Jesus in that text. But but maybe today for our particular purpose, I want you to see that not only did the high priest represent the people before God, the high priest represented God before the people. And when he spoke, just like Caiaphas says here, he prophesied because he was high priest that year. And so he spoke to the people on behalf of God. So he spoke to God on behalf of the people and he spoke to the people on behalf of God. That's what the high priest does. That's his role. He's the mediator between God and man in the Old Testament. I don't want you to be an expert in the high priest in the Old Testament. I want you to be an expert on the high priest that is Jesus Christ. The great high priest who is Jesus Christ. But you will not appreciate what the author of Hebrews is going to say for the next month if you don't have some understanding of the high priest from the Old Testament. That's who he is. But he's got basically one job. There's one big job that the high priest has at, that only he could do. No one else was qualified to do this. And it happened once a year on a very special day called the Day of Atonement. So after you read Exodus chapter 28 this week, I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter 16. 
And I want you to read that whole chapter about the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is an absolutely huge day in the life of a Jewish person, especially in the first century. And it's this long, complicated ritual where basically the sins of the people for the previous year are dealt with in a blood sacrifice. Now, I want to rewind a little bit and tell you that before the high priest can go in in the Old Testament and make the sacrifice in the temple, he had to make a sacrifice for his own sins first. He had to kill a bull and cleanse himself and get his sins taken care of before he could go before the Lord and represent the people and deal with their sins. Jesus doesn't have to do that step. Jesus doesn't have to cleanse himself from his own sins because he doesn't have any sins. Stay tuned for like three months from now. We'll get to that part and it'll be great. But after he does that, the high priest basically takes two goats. And one of those goats is slaughtered. And the blood of that animal is taken into the holiest place, the holy of holies. And the blood of that animal is used to cleanse the mercy seat, the top of the Ark of the Covenant, and all the utensils that are used in all the rituals, basically to make the place pure again because it's become impure because of the sins of the people. So the blood of this animal cleanses cleanses the sin of the people from the previous year. The other goat is taken and the priest puts his hands on his head and basically um, transfers, the, the theological word would be imputes, he imputes the sins of the people to that goat and then he smacks him on the bottom and he runs out into the wilderness. That's where we get the word scapegoat from. It's a biblical idea. He's going to bear the problem and take it away for somebody else. So there are two big ideas. That sin is being dealt with by blood and the sin is being dealt with by um, imputation. Being born by another. And all of this is such a rich picture that the author of Hebrews just drops in. He says, Jesus became like his brethren in all things so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Drop that there and then walk away for a minute and then come back to it. It's so rich. It's so wonderful. So... The author is saying here that Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. In other words, so that he could be a mediator and a sacrifice offerer for our sins. One scholar says it like this. The old covenant high priest offered gifts and sacrifices for sins on behalf of men in relation to God. He was the mediator between God and the people. God would come in judgment because of the sins of the people, and the high priest would stand in their place, offering sacrifices that satisfied God's justice and demonstrated his mercy by punishing an innocent animal in the place of a guilty human being. And then this author adds that Christ fulfills this by offering himself as the final sacrifice is made clear all throughout Hebrews. So that's what we know about the high priest. He says, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. And then, the author of Hebrews says, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. And this draws special attention to the sacrifice that Jesus offers. This idea of propitiation is drawing special attention to the work of sacrifice that Jesus does as our great high priest. This word, propitiation, in Greek, is the same root word 
that if we were to translate the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek, if we were to take the word mercy seat, you know what the mercy seat is? It's the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. It's the very presence of God amongst the people. That it's, it's the place where the blood was poured so that the people could be cleansed. That word in Hebrew is translated into Greek as propitiation. It's the same root word. So, so uh, let me read what one, one scholar says about this. Uh, Conrad Mbewe is his name. He says, to a Jew who is familiar with Greek, the word, this word propitiation pointed to the mercy seat in the temple where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year with the blood of a slain animal. He would pour the blood on the mercy seat. His message would be, yes, Lord, we deserve to die. You are a holy and just God. Sin deserves death. But because of your mercy, you have provided that another should take our place and die our death. Another has taken our place. Here is the evidence, the shed blood. Be appeased. Become propitious toward us. May your justice be satisfied. Uh, that, that should get you going a little bit. That that same word that's used in the Old Testament for mercy seat, when you translate it over into the New Testament, it becomes the root word for propitiation. So all this picture of the high priest and his work in the Holy of Holies is coming forward into the New Testament in the work of Christ. Paul Washer says that in his opinion, the word propitiation is the most important word in all of Scripture, save for the names of God. I think he's right about that. I I would share that opinion, that this is at least one of the most important words in all of Scripture, propitiation. Wayne Grudem, systematic theologian, defines it this way. Propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath toward us into favor. That should make you smile. A sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end, drinks every drop of the cup of God's wrath, and in so doing, doesn't just take the wrath away, but changes the wrath into favor. There's another step there. He doesn't just just take it away. He makes us friends with God through his death. Another scholar defines it this way. Propitiation properly signifies the removal of wrath by the offering of a gift. Another says propitiation signifies the turning away of wrath by an offering. Another says the act of appeasing the wrath and conciliating the favor of an offended person. So two big ideas when we talk about propitiation. The wrath and justice is satisfied and no longer is there wrath but there is favor. I got too excited there a while ago, right? That's the right spot, right there. That's it. So the wrath is taken away, favor in its place because of death. This word is used several times in the New Testament. Once in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Let me read it to you. It says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Hallelujah. 1 John 4.10 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son in the world, so that we might not so that we may live through him 
In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So John, twice in his letters, drops the idea of propitiation into the mix to encourage the people to be loving toward one another. He basically says, if this is the way God has worked for you, if he has, if he has satisfied his wrath and turned his wrath into the favor by a sacrifice, then you should live that way toward one another. But the best, the best explanation of propitiation is in Romans 3. So turn there. Turn with me to Romans 3. Romans 3, and, and listen, as you're turning there, I want, to, I want to tell you, this is diving deeper into the glories of Calvary. This is going deeper than just saying, Jesus died for our sins, and that's a good thing. I want to go there and say, Jesus died for our sins, and that's a good thing. But I want to go deeper and say, Jesus is propitiation for our sins, and that's an incredible thing. That's an unbelievable thing, that he is propitiation. So, Romans chapter 3, let's start in verse 9. We'll get some really bad news, really bad news before we get to the really good news. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, God says through Paul, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Who's left out in that? Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Nobody's left out in that. You know what that means? Everyone is under sin. There's nobody on the planet who's not a Jew or a Greek in this day. That covers the whole world's population. And then look what he says from the Old Testament. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Is this good news so far? That's bad news for us, right? How many righteous people are there on the planet? None. Not even a single one. Verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep on deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed destruction. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes comment is, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But, this is the good news, here comes the good news, that was all bad news, but now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. If you're a circler or an underliner, that'd be a good word to circle. Righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed and for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is glorious. This is glorious truth right here. But it's also scandalous truth. 
And this is what Paul Washer chases for 10 minutes in that little clip I posted on Twitter and Facebook this week. He says, this is scandalous. Because how can God, if he is righteous, if he is truly righteous, and he is truly just, and he is, Scripture teaches that forever and ever, that God is righteous and God is just, how can a just and righteous God forgive a sinner? How can there ever be relationship between the holy one and the unholy ones? How could this ever take place? How could God forgive sinners? This is a scandal. Paul Washer even cites Proverbs 17, 15 that says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So how can a righteous God forgive sinful man? Well, he could just look the other way, right? And that's what a lot of people think. That, oh, he could just look the other way and say, you know what, that idolatry, that adultery, that murder that you have all committed, it's, it's not that big of a deal. I was just trying to tone it down when I made all those laws and rules for you. I was just trying to not let you get out of control. It's really not that big of a deal. What if he does that? If he does that, he's no longer righteous. If he does that, he's no longer just. If he does that, he is no longer the Holy One. If he just says, oh, it's no big deal. So how, how does a righteous God forgive sinful man? The answer to this question is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is not just a demonstration of love and mercy and grace. It is a demonstration of justice and righteousness and wrath. We need to know that. In fact, if someone ever asks you, in the Bible, what is the greatest demonstration of God's wrath? Do not answer the flood. Do not answer Sodom and Gomorrah. Do not talk about Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. Do not talk about something that is coming later in Revelation. If someone asks you what is the greatest demonstration of the wrath of God in the entire Bible, you tell them the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest demonstration of the wrath of God in the entire Bible. It is the greatest demonstration of the justice of God in the entire Bible. It is the greatest demonstration of the righteousness of God in the entire Bible. And it is also the greatest demonstration of his love and mercy and grace. Paul Washer says, some people like to say, well, God could have been just with me, but instead he's been loving. Phooey! He is able to be just and loving. He is able to be righteous and merciful. He is able, in the words of the Apostle Paul, to be just and the justifier of the unrighteous because of the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, read that last part of Romans 3 with me again. Romans 3, start in verse 21. And notice the language here. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. When he's talking about the cross, at least here, he's not primarily emphasizing the love of God or the mercy of God or the grace of God. He's saying when we look at the cross, we're seeing a display of the righteousness of God and he won't let us miss it. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. 
This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Propitiation was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he had previously passed over sins committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness. So that at the present time, at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. The cross is deep. We do not just see love at the cross. We see righteousness at the cross. Sin is dealt with. The justice of God is satisfied so that he can be merciful to us as sinners. He's just and loving, and we are saved. We are saved as a result. So, in dealing with our problem of sin like this, in dealing with our problem of sin by propitiation, He gets at the very root and cause of death. And this delivers us from slavery to fear of death. And this deliverance from fear is not mere sentiment. Jesus doesn't just come along. This is going back to last week. Track with me here. We're going back to last week. Jesus doesn't just come along and say, Hey guys, you don't need to be afraid of death. Just trust me. You don't need to be afraid of death. No. He says, you don't need to be afraid of death because I took away its teeth. I took away its sting. I took away sin. I really dealt with sin. And if there is no sin, there is no death. And I've taken death away. So you've got nothing to fear from death because I have dealt with sin this way. John Piper says it like this. What this means is that the only weapon the devil can use to destroy us in death is our sin. The only reason anybody goes to hell is because of their own sin. And all Satan can do is fight like hell to keep you sinning and to keep you away from the one who forgives sins. If your sins are forgiven and the wrath of God is removed from you in propitiation and you stand righteous before God in Christ Jesus by faith and God is for you and not against you, then the devil is rendered powerless. He cannot destroy you. It gets better. So in sum... The connection between verse 14 and verse 17 shows that the way Christ renders powerless the devil is by making propitiation for our sins, which shows that the only lethal weapon in the artillery of Satan is our own sin. If that, if that sin is covered by the blood of Jesus, if that sin is forgiven, if the anger of God against us is gone and in its place is omnipotent grace working for our good, then we can cry out to any human or demonic manslayer, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The body they may kill, but that is all. Instantly, we are home with the Lord. Why why can we have such death-defying confidence? Because of propitiation. Because sin has really been dealt with in the cross of Christ. The wrath of God is satisfied and turned into favor toward us. He doesn't just wipe our sin under the carpet and act as if it doesn't exist. He sent a substitute to take the wrath in our place. And so he is ju- his justice is satisfied. That's why we sang that a while ago. His justice is satisfied. And he could show us mercy. He can show us grace. This is, this is the gospel. This is the glorious good news that we celebrate and sing about all the time. And we want to go deeper and deeper into it all the time. Look at verse 18. Actually, let's read 17 first. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
And verse 18 says, For since he himself is tempted in that in which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That verse 18 is simply a reiteration of the importance of the incarnation. He became man so that he could save men. I'm using man here in general. He became man so that he could save mankind. He was tempted so that he can come to our aid when we are tempted. And we'll see more and more and more of that theme as this book develops. So this is the heart of the gospel. Jesus coming to die as a propitiation for our sins. Taking the wrath of God and turning it into favor by his death. By his blood. And because he has dealt with the problem of sin, we are freed from the fear of death. So what do we do? What do we do in all of this? I think there are three applications, and and we could probably make these three applications every week, especially when we're studying heart of the gospel type texts. Application number one is we believe this. We believe this message. We believe this truth, and we are saved. Because this propitiation, this salvation, this reconciliation that happens through the death of Jesus Christ only applies only applies to those who trust Christ. He's not propitiation for everyone universally. He's propitiation for those who place their faith in Him. Romans 3 made that clear. You go back and look at it. By faith, we receive the benefits of His propitiation. So there are a lot of people in this room today who are already trusting in Christ for their salvation. Praise the Lord for that. What a gift He's given you. But I am no fool. There are people in this room today who are lost as can be, dead in their trespasses and sins, far from God. And I want to invite you, encourage you, beg you even, to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ today for salvation. There's no other hope. But there is hope in Christ. One one of my favorite preachers says, there's only one door. There's only one door to salvation. But the one door is open. It's open today. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Application number one, believe it. Application number two, worship him because of it. Are you kidding me? The son of God becomes man and dies and takes the wrath of God in my place and and changes wrath that I deserve into favor from God? Are you kidding me? I'm going to sing about that till I die. I'm going to sing about that after I die. For all of eternity we will sing about the lamb who was slain, who purchased with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I want to practice for that. We practiced for that a little bit this morning. We sing, can we do all that again with this now? Sure. No, you just laughed at me at first. That's ridiculous. We want to sing those songs all day long. We want to respond in worship to God who has saved us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ by his sacrifice. And then the last response, not only do we believe it, not only do we worship the Lord because of it, but we proclaim this message. This is an incredible truth that we have to share. And we've got to share it. We've got to share it. We've got to proclaim the message. We've got to do evangelism and we've got to do missions and we've got to engage. We've got to leverage our relationships so that we can speak this message, the message of hope for the hopeless. The message of forgiveness for sinners. That's the truth that we get to share with the world. Why are we so afraid to do that? 
Why are we so unwilling to do that? It's good news. Maybe, maybe it's because we don't think it's really good news. Maybe it's because we look at it and we think, yeah, I've heard this a thousand times. It's really not that great to me anymore. My prayer for you is that God would stir it in your heart one more time. That you would see the glories of Calvary. And maybe it's because you just don't care about the people around you. Maybe you're able to look at your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, who is actively rejecting Jesus, and you're able to look at them and say, I don't care. I don't care. You can go to hell. It's fine with me. It's essentially what you're saying if you're not willing to tell them about Jesus. Or maybe you're able to look at the billions of people around the planet who don't even have access to this good news, and you say, nah, it's okay with me. I don't care. I got mine. They can fend for themselves. If that's where you're at today, my prayer is that God would bring conviction heavy upon you and that he would break your hearts for the lost people and the lost peoples around you. That you would have some compassion and spread the gospel. And maybe it's because you don't believe in its power anymore. Maybe we don't share it because we don't believe the gospel has power to change people's lives anymore. Maybe it's because you haven't seen that in a while. We're going to watch a video next week of a little guy on the other side of the planet whose life has been changed by God's grace. And he got baptized just a few weeks ago. We're going to watch a video of it next week, and it's going to be a great day. I want you to know that the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And if we will share it, we'll see that power. Let's stand together and pray. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the cross of Christ. We pray for men and women and boys and girls in this room and across the planet who are not trusting in Christ right now that you would teach them the truths of the gospel in a way that we cannot, that you would teach it to their hearts, that you bring conviction of sin, that you would give faith to believe, that you would give repentance to turn, and that you would save for your own glory even in this room, even now. And for your people, I pray that you'll give us continued faith, continued trust in your goodness and your grace and the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray that you will help us to worship you in response to the gospel and that you will help us to declare it as we leave this place and that you would receive glory in all of it in Christ's name.